0: So my task is uh, over the next few minutes to update you on some data around upfront and maintenance therapy with follicular lymphoma. Uh, A few of these areas have been touched on uh, at various points in the meeting already, but I thought it would be best just to kind of walk through a couple different scenarios uh, and where we have uh, relatively recent data that might uh, inform your practice. These are my disclosures and I will mention a couple of drugs that are Uh, related to uh, companies listed here so you can keep that in mind. So the first question that comes up with follicular lymphoma when you see a a new patient uh, is as you well know what patient needs treatment because there are a substantial fraction of patients depending on your practice that may be observed without any therapy and so uh, this is largely a clinical decision uh, it depends a lot on what symptoms the patient is having, where the lymph nodes are, what the blood counts are, uh, anything that's affecting uh, the patient, and to some degree it also relates on to their perspectives uh, and their psychology. And so as you all know, these are long consult, long discussions exp- explaining why watch and wait might be appropriate for some people. So we have a couple of criteria here that are listed, and I don't look at these as Uh, absolute uh, uh, requirements, but they're just rough guidelines. They're really developed for clinical trials to say that, yeah, if a patient had these criteria, it would be reasonable to treat them on a clinical trial as opposed to doing a clinical trial with a bunch of people that didn't need treatment and then you had a good result and you didn't know how to interpret that. And so these are largely common sense. They're listed here, but the general themes that come through, I think, are consistent with one's clinical judgment. Uh, A large tumor, multiple sites of disease, symptoms from the spleen, from organs, uh, pleural effusion, uh, or perhaps uh, laboratory values or other symptoms that would uh, prompt uh, uh, some initiation of therapy. And you can see the BNLI are a little bit different, perhaps uh, less absolute in the numbers and more focused on kind of pace Clinical judgment, uh, organ involvement, uh, and then a couple specific lab values. So I think um, you know we can create scenarios where all of us would agree this person doesn't need treatment. All of us would agree this person does. And I think uh, this uh, these help to to guide us a little bit in those kind of in between scenarios. So, um, but these are I think things just that are worth keeping in mind. And I, I find that um, you know they're also reassuring to patients that. When you tell a patient that you don't meet criteria for treatment, when you, you've already decided that you don't want to treat a patient or you don't think they need treatment, it's also reassuring to say, and in fact, um, in support of that, guidelines don't really uh, reflect that people like you in this situation need to have any therapy. As uh, you know, we have the FLIPI, the Follicular Lymphoma IPI. This looks at uh, a different thing. This is not something that really helps you, although there's a little bit of a Venn diagram. It doesn't tell you whether or not a patient needs treatment. It's more of a prognostic score. And this reflects nodal sites, uh, stage, LDH, hemoglobin, and age, again, representing that you know anemic patients may be more likely to need treatment, uh, and other parameters may, may prompt treatment. So the FLIPI, again, is more of a prognostic tool. Uh, as opposed to a tool that says you need to treat somebody. And there are a lot of efforts and, and we don't have time to get into this, but there are a lot of efforts to refine the Flippy, to try to uh, uh, make it more predictive. And there are a number of uh, clinical and, and uh, molecular data that have gone into the M7 Flippy. You can see some of the parameters listed on the left. These include clinical parameters like high risk, flippy disease, performance status, and then either over or under uh, expression uh, of or, or evidence of, I should say, the presence or absence of certain gene mutations that would put a patient in a higher risk representing the uh, uh, mustard colored and a lower risk representing the blue colored so uh, an EZH2 mutation for instance is a better prognostic uh, feature and so one can envision a time where these might be used as part of a mutational profile to uh, further stratify and further uh, clarify someone's risk and in fact on the bottom right you see that largely what the m7 flippy does is it takes this group of uh, of uh, high-risk patients the mustard colored group and essentially moves some patients out of that group into a lower risk group and again highlighting then that those that are truly m flippy seven uh, m7 flippy high uh, really have a much uh, less favorable outcome as reflected by the Kaplan-Meier curve in the upper right corner so again this this is evolving, its it's utility in clinical practice is evolving, but again, important uh, to keep in mind. So this is just as we get into therapy now, this is uh, one framework that gives us some sense of, uh, of how we approach patients and clearly Um, The idea of watch and wait for a group of patients uh, remains, uh, and localized disease we'll get into in a second. Uh, Advanced stage disease, again, if it's acting indolent without symptoms, low tumor burden, watch and wait, or perhaps single agent rituximab. And then as patients have more advanced disease with symptoms, you get into chemoimmunotherapy taking a more prominent uh, role. So I think this is a very, very high-level framework that obviously has a lot of nuance to it. So I just wanted to spend a second, because there have been some new data on limited stage follicular lymphoma. Um, This curve is actually an older uh, curve from Jonathan Friedberg in the lymphocare, highlighting the fact that um, you can treat these patients in a lot of different ways. And in a kind of retrospective, or a registry analysis, I should say, of a group of limited stage patients, uh, it seemed like in practice these patients are treated a number of different ways. Um, And the PFS is quite variable. The overall survival, however, seems to be quite similar regardless of how you approach these patients, whether you give them radiation, watch and wait, combined modality therapy, chemoimmunotherapy. And I think the concept of cure is a complex one because obviously these patients can have long remissions. We think about being able to cure them, but they can also relapse 10, 15, 20 years later. And what that means and how one should approach that or think about that I think uh, is a matter of uh, interest uh, as far as philosophy and discussion. This paper came out earlier this year, and I just wanted to uh, mention it because I think it's relevant to the topic, not so much about maintenance, but upfront therapy. This was a a study of 150 patients that were randomized to radiation alone, 30 gray involved field, uh, and then uh, half the patients received either CVP or, because a study went on for some time, RCVP, so it was a mixture. You see it's about 10 years of follow-up. The, the 10-year progression-free survival was quite good. About 40% of the patients uh, were still uh, without progression at 10 years if they just got radiation. With combined modality therapy, that went up to 60%. Uh, obviously, an RCBP was better than CBP, as you might expect. Um, and overall survival, as you also probably would expect, at 10 years was quite good in both arms. So I think this leads some to say, well, you know, you had a 20% improvement in 10-year in uh, PFS by adding chemoimmunotherapy. On the other hand, obviously, at the time of progression, you would give these patients probably chemoimmunotherapy, and so the mileage that they got out of it and the long-term outcome might be quite similar. So I think this is just worth keeping in mind. I think it provides some consideration for uh, adding uh, chemoimmunotherapy to upfront therapy, but I also don't think that it really uh, answers the question that there is one that's definitely better uh, than the other. So just worth knowing about this. So this is, uh, before we move on to advanced stage disease, my approach to limited stage disease is summarized here. I think watch and wait is still an acceptable approach for even limited stage patients. Uh, particularly if there, there's suspicion of disease elsewhere. Sometimes these patients have kind of borderline piddly things on PET scans elsewhere that you might want to watch a little bit before you, you radiate them to see if there's really disease there or not, if you can't biopsy it. Alternatively, if a patient has a resected node, uh, you, the small node, you might argue the added value of radiation might be limited uh, in that case. Certainly, radiation is acceptable and appropriate for many patients and is commonly done. It depends, obviously, on the location and the size. I generally have not adapted or adopted the combined modality therapy because I'm not sure in the long term that there's value there, but it seems like that's reasonable. One could also ask about rituximab in this setting as well. Again, uh, no answers at this point. And then personally, I don't overemphasize the concept of cure here. I think it's fine to to hope that these patients are cured, but I think um, to overstate the likelihood of cure uh, in this particular situation in decision-making, I think, uh, is open to some debate and discussion, and maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later. So now we move, and the rest of my discussion will be focused on single-agent rituximab, and this group uh, knows very well that there are uh, data from the standpoint of single agent rituximab and low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, high response rates just with four doses of about 80 percent, progression-free survival in the range of about two years or so. And so this is certainly has been and, and probably will continue to be a reasonable approach as upfront therapy for low tumor burden patients who perhaps want to avoid chemotherapy, avoid toxicity of chemotherapy, um, but have indications uh, for therapy otherwise. So again, a reasonable option uh, in some situations. We have these data from our Deshin and colleagues from about four years ago, suggesting that single agent rituximab versus watch and wait. Uh, Obviously, time to treatment two is going to be better or longer than time to treatment one if you do an initial treatment. That's the upper left curve, as will be progression-free survival. But at the end of the day, overall survival and time to transformation is quite similar. So I think most have argued that this does not provide compelling evidence that you should rush to treat someone who would otherwise uh, be a watch and wait candidate. The other question that comes up if you're using four doses of single agent rituximab is whether or not you should use maintenance. This is the resort (coughs) trial led by Brad Call suggesting that uh, basically four doses of rituximab followed by maintenance versus retreatment. You get the same mileage uh, out of uh, of retreatment when needed as opposed to maintenance. Uh, You end up with fewer rituximab doses and so uh, this has led many to say that you don't need to use maintenance with single agent rituximab as initial treatment because again, uh, you can retreat the patient uh, and do just as well, get the same mileage out of rituximab. So I just wanted to to point out that there is a study uh, um, that I'm not involved with. I think it's an interesting, perhaps uh, even a little debatable uh, concept, but uh, this is a randomized trial that's ongoing now Uh, and was presented at ASCO last year, trials in in progress. Single agent uh, rituximab followed by maintenance, again, uh, deciding to use maintenance versus a brute nib, and I think this is an interesting concept. And one would ask the question: How you know is a brute nib the right agent? Uh, in follicular lymphoma, that one might argue that that's debatable. Uh, and then the, the question of the maintenance, and then the question of really, you know, how does this compare to chemoimmunotherapy? Uh, what's the value of adding a brutinib here? What are the pros and cons, toxicity, efficacy-wise? So I think these will be interesting, certainly not something I would do outside of a protocol at this point, but an interesting concept of building on single-agent rituximab without chemotherapy. And we'll come back to that uh, in just a minute. So my approach to low tumor burden advanced stage patients is again, watch and wait is acceptable if the patient doesn't have indications for therapy. Newly diagnosed patients, I often find it's good to watch them a little while, get a sense of the pace of the disease, let the patient Uh, learn about the disease and kind of develop some level of comfort, so to speak, as to what the options are and what fits their their priorities. Uh, I often will use single agent rituximab if the patient desires treatment or needs treatment but has minimal symptoms, minimal indications, perhaps cosmetic issues, other things, um, and I tend to not use maintenance in that setting. Certainly one could consider in a low tumor burden patient chemoimmunotherapy, obviously the trade-off, more toxicity of adding chemotherapy, on the other hand, perhaps a longer remission. A patient with uh, a limited course of chemoimmunotherapy with low tumor burden disease may well have a long remission and not have to think about the the disease for a long period of time. So certainly uh, worth discussing now. So now let's move to perhaps a little bit more common scenario or a scenario that emerges quite often, the patient that you'd want to think about chemoimmunotherapy. And I think everyone here knows that rituximab added to CHOP or CVP improves survival and that uh, r bendamustine has become uh, one of the options for these patients as well. That's based on this study uh, that was updated about five, actually ASCO last year, and uh, even going back. But basically, progression-free survival with BR over R-CHOP seemingly better, uh, and overall survival being quite similar, less toxicity, particularly with respect to alopecia. There are a few criticisms of this study, but at the end of the day, there's another study, the Bright Study, with fairly similar comparable results. So I think BR, perhaps because of the less toxicity, less hair loss, less anthracycline use, uh, obviously remains an option and a very reasonable option and certainly in the US commonly used chemoimmunotherapy for upfront treatment. And then we have data from the PRIMA study, uh, led by Gilles Sal, suggesting that if you use RCHOP or RCVP, there were not um, BR treated patients in this study, if you used RCHOP or RCVP, went into remission that R maintenance versus for two years versus observation an improvement by about 15% in 10-year progression-free survival. So that's led some to say, you know, you could do chemoimmunotherapy in two years of maintenance. It's two and a half years more or less of treatment uh, could give you a, a pretty good chance of the 10-year uh, remission. On the other hand, uh, these patients who didn't get maintenance uh, but likely uh, could get rituximab maintenance, could get a lot of other things, could be responsive to it um, without having to go through that two years of maintenance uh, which may or may not be uh, something people want to do and the overall survival is the same. Reflecting on the right here that uh, you know, relapse has implications for the patient but doesn't seem to have survival implications for the patient on a a large scale. So again, I think this leaves people with the option of using maintenance or not using maintenance uh, based on these data. So then that brings us to the Gallium uh, study and we heard from Jonathan Cohen and Sony Smith a little bit about this study uh, earlier today. So I won't go into a lot of detail, uh, just to highlight a couple of things. So this again took frontline patients uh, randomized them to R-CHOP, R-CVP, or R-bendamustine, plus R-maintenance for two years, so everyone on this study, if you're interpreting these data and applying them to the patient, everyone on this study got R-maintenance, versus obinutuzumab, or G in this uh, schema, again with the same chemotherapy, or, uh, and then followed by maintenance. And so, large study. The net of this study was a, uh, I would say, modest progression-free survival benefit and no overall survival benefits. So again, we had a lot of discussion earlier today about the pros and cons of this and, and the impact of this, and I won't uh, belabor uh, this point. Um, it is uh, of interest, uh, I'll just highlight two points, that it seemed to not matter which chemotherapy patients got. There was that same modest benefit seemed to happen in, in each of the arms. And interestingly, I'll just point out and highlight one other aspect of this that some people have latched onto, and that is that the uh, arms with uh, bendamustine seem to have um, interesting, perhaps slightly concerning rates of infection. The, The B or bendamustine antibody combinations, whether GB, or RB uh, followed by uh, G or R maintenance um, seem to have a significant rates of serious infections and you can see on the on the right uh, just the top the top panel I'll highlight here the fatal adverse events by arm and you can see that the, these are not randomized between different chemo regimens but relatively few out of about 200 patients getting chop based regimen relatively few dots relatively few deaths um, whereas more or less uh one and a half times as many people got a bendamustine containing regimen again with maintenance and a few more dots here and you can see that reflected and this might have been a little bit more in the way of infections with the obinutuzumab so at least it raises the question risk of infections after bendamustine maintenance uh with a cd20 antibody and whether or not that's different with obinutuzumab or not so this is not uh, uh Uh, I think it changed some people's practice, on the other hand, others have steered a little bit more clear away uh, away from bendamustine with maintenance uh, because of this infection uh, concern. So I think uh, this is worth knowing about. Uh, I think the jury is still out as the answer. The other aspect of this is MRD negativity, and there was a study presented at ASH uh, a year and a half ago, give or take, um, that suggested that there was greater MRD negativity and that correlated with outcome when you used obinutuzumab. So to the extent that MRD negativity is an endpoint that means something, I think that's open to some debate, uh, but it seems to correlate with uh, a better outcome. And the other aspect that people have tried to use is to say, well, what about PET scanning? And end of treatment PET in follicular lymphoma seems to correlate with a better outcome if it's PET negative. And so this has led some to think about whether we should be using PET and or MRD as a marker to decide should we use maintenance because again negative patients are gonna tend to do better so should we continue to treat one way or another to achieve negativity either on the PET uh, or by MRD and this has led to the follow 12 study which basically says that uh, the experimental arm says you give some induction therapy, treat to either the end of treatment PET If it's positive, go on and give more therapy. If the PET is negative, do an MRD assessment. If the patient's MRD negative, observe. If the MRD is positive, do maintenance for rituximab. So the idea being using the PET, a PET MRD-driven approach versus what you would do anyway to see if there's a difference. And I think this is an interesting idea, uh, and we obviously await these data. There's also another study, again, just mentioning abrutinib, because this is where this is being done, um, looking at brutinib maintenance. And I just highlighted and mentioned this study, again, whether or not this will be similar to the rituximab data, the concept of using abrutinib as a maintenance treatment. Again, is abrutinib the best treatment here, given that the response rates uh, are lower than some other things, uh, remains to be seen. And then finally, I want to finish up with a few words about the relevant study which had been published in the New England Journal earlier this year. This asked the question, could a chemo free regimen do as well or better than uh, a a chemo R containing regimen? And the answer is it seems to do as well, doesn't seem to do better, um, but um, an interesting concept. And so this took advanced stage patients and randomized them to R squared, lenalidomide rituximab, followed by some rituximab maintenance, as you see. This was overall about a two-year treatment regimen versus our chemo, followed by uh, our maintenance. And this was designed as a superiority study, uh, looking for R-squared to be superior. It was not superior. Overall response rate was similar, as you see on the left. CRCRU rate was similar, as you see on the right. Progression-free survival was similar, as you see uh, on this curve. Both arms did quite well. And the safety is a little bit different. Um, And so the neutropenia, perhaps a little bit more with our chemo, grade 3, 4 neutropenia. Febrile neutropenia, perhaps a little bit more with our chemo. Uh, Infections, similar, maybe a little more with our chemo. (coughs) Rash, uh, a little more uh, with uh, R squared or leadalidomide. So our chemo, more febrile neutropenia, growth factors, nausea, neuropathy, alopecia. On the other hand, more rash, tumor, flare, and diarrhea with a lenalidomide-containing regimen. So is this enough to change your practice? I think uh, for most patients, probably not. But it also suggests that even if a patient and the results uh, were similar across all tumor burden uh, uh, settings and various subgroups. You know, it, this is an option for patients that at least seems to be similar to our chemo, but there's not a compelling reason to add to switch over necessarily um, based on any positive data in this study, but you might argue that some people might prefer one or the other toxicity profile. So to finish up, uh, just two slides left, my approach to higher tumor burden, advanced stage follicular lymphoma based on these data, I tend to use uh, Arbenda for these patients uh, based on similar efficacy and less toxicity compared to RCHOP. Keep in mind if you are worried about transformation in a patient, you need to consider, about, uh, consider RCHOP and obviously biopsy. I am not a, uh, a strong endorser of maintenance for Tuximab for the reasons that I've highlighted PFS is, uh, uh, is improved, but not overall survival. I think quality of life is unclear, so I talk about this with patients, but I don't uh, push it for patients, and I think most of my patients end up not doing maintenance, but uh, it's not wrong to do, and, and certain of you may have uh, your own practice. Obinutuzumab I think is of limited value, it's a pretty modest PFS benefit, we heard about that today. Um, The problems that weren't as highlighted this morning uh, I think are that we don't have a subcutaneous option and many patients are switching over to subcutaneous treatment. It perhaps commits them to maintenance. If you're following these data, um, I, again, don't tend to use maintenance as much. So if you're using obinutuzumab, we don't have the data without maintenance. And again, these concerns about infections after benamustine antibody with maintenance, uh, again, are one reason why uh, I don't go down that path. And then I just want to finish with one very key point that doesn't relate to my topic directly, um, but really around... Uh, following patients in remission, and this is a very important thing to keep in mind. You need to tailor the follow-up to the risk of relapse. If you have a patient who you treat with chemoimmunotherapy, let's say, and they have a PET-negative CR at the end of treatment, that patient is not likely to relapse uh, over the next uh, four or five years and probably longer. And so, you know, you don't need to be doing scans on that patient every four months. Um, You know, uh, whereas if you have a patient who's in a PR, maybe you need to watch them a little more closely, not that scans are the thing to do. We tend to try to focus on history, physical exam, minimizing surveillance imaging, um, unless you're particularly worried about the patient or they have symptoms or indications, and encourage a return to normalcy. So with that, I will stop.